Hello and welcome to the Weather of the Mind podcast. I'm your host, Doug Chris. Good day to you. Hope this podcast finds you well. Today we're continuing to discuss the works, or some of the works, of David Foster Wallace, rest in peace, taking essays from his book, Consider the Lobster. Today we're going to look at his essay, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, which came out in August 30th, 1992. Originally, that was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer back in 92. This essay is essentially a scathing critique of the sports memoir genre. Often it's a famous athlete with a ghostwriter, sometimes acknowledged, sometimes not, on the cover page. But this is like a mass market sports memoirs, and he's basically critiquing them as being unable to capture the genius of these amazing athletes. Now, David Foster Wallace was very intensely trained as a up-and-coming, strong amateur, semi-pro level tennis star in his teenage years. He played a lot of competitive tennis. So in this essay, he reflects on Tracy Austin, who is a few years older than him, but kind of this up-and-coming teen superstar who just had an incredible career. A career, though, that peaked at age 18 or 19, and by 21, her career was over. So in this essay, he he tries to explore that this is a rich, amazing story on some levels. This precocious young teenage star made it to the top of the game, but then crumbled so quickly. And she started playing tennis at three years old. So there's the questions of parental pressure and teen prodigies and early collapse. So there's so much richness to her story. But in her biography, as he highlights in his essay, it's mostly just, it's mostly very shallow. It doesn't really get to that intimacy that we desire that we, we get when we watch live sports. So let's jump in. Let me make a few quick announcements and jump into today's podcast. You can find episodes on weatherofthemind.org. Also, I try to keep a list of upcoming shows. It's a rough list, but you can see what essays we're reading coming up in future episodes, what topics there are coming up in future weeks. One thing I'm very excited about is I'm doing a review of Gail Sheehy, uh, her book, Passages, Gail Sheehy published this book in the 70s, and it was a huge hit, and I'm, I'd like to give it a read now. She just passed. We'll do the Rest in Peace episode for Gail Sheehy. So, moving right along, uh, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me over the website, and yeah, let's jump into it. So, I want to share a few excerpts in David Foster Wallace's own voice from this essay, in case you did not get a chance to read it. If you do want to read it, there are copies of it online. There's links on the website. Okay, so he starts out, really lays out his thesis right away. He says, Because I'm a long-time rabid fan of tennis in general, and Tracy Austin in particular, I've really looked forward to reading a sports memoir the way I look forward to Mrs. Austin's Beyond Center Court, My Story, ghosted by Christine Brennan and published by Morrow. This is a type of mass-market book, 
the sports star with somebody autobiography that I seem to have bought and read an awful lot of, with all sorts of ups and downs and ambivalence and embarrassment, usually putting these books under something more highbrow when I get to the register. I think Austin's memoir has maybe finally broken my Jones for the genre, though. He goes on on the second page of the essay. This is like a 15-page, 20-page essay. Here's a quote. Here is a theory. Top athletes are compelling because they embody the comparison-based achievement we Americans revere. Fastest, strongest, and because they do so in totally unambiguous ways. Questions of the best plumber or best managerial accountant are impossible even to define. Whereas the best relief pitcher free throw shooter, or female tennis player is, at any given time, a matter of public statistical record. Top athletes fascinate us by appealing to our twin compulsions with competitive superiority and hard data. Great athletes are profundity in motion. They enable abstractions like power and grace and control to become not only incarnate but televisable. To be a top athlete, performing is to be that exquisite hybrid of animal and angel that we average, unbeautiful watchers have such a hard time seeing in ourselves. So we want to know them as these gifted, driven, physical achievers. We too as audience are driven. Watching the performance is not enough. We want to get intimate with all that profundity. We want inside them, we want the story, we want to hear about humble roots, privation, precocity, grim resolve, discouragement, persistence, team spirit, sacrifice, killer instinct, liniment, and pain. We want to know how they did it. So let me pause there for a minute. So he's really jumping into why we love sports. And I think his, his main point here is how can we love sports so much, but then be so horribly teased by these lightweight, these vacuous memoirs, these sports memoirs are are just often playing off the famous person's name and cobbled together with such lack of care compared to the normal standards of a good book. The thing is, his thesis is, for at least for me, once he lays it out, it is 100% agreeable. So in this podcast, I'm not going to refute him at all. If anything, I'm just going to nod my head and and explore why I agree this as well and, and, and try to take a few other side points or related points of sports and culture and what we crave out of sports. All right, let's jump back to a few more excerpts from the essay. Here we go. Quote, So the point then about these sports memoirs market appeal, because top athletes are profound, because they make a certain type of genius, a certain type of genius as carnally discernible as it can ever get, these ghost-written invitations inside their lives and their skulls are terribly seductive for book buyers. Explicitly or not, the memoirs make a promise to let us penetrate the indefinable mystery of what makes some person's geniuses, semi-divine, to share with us the secret and so both to reveal the difference between us and them and to erase it a little. So sports, what do they offer us? What is sport? Are you a sports fan? If so, what do sports offer you? And if you're not a sports fan, what do you think sports offers the rest of us? I know some people think sports is a waste of time. It does not really resonate with with them and how they perceive the world. But for many of us, sports is 
one of the most fascinating, most beautiful parts of life. And my theory on that is, is really sports as cultural space. I think we enjoy some form of escape from just the normal life. If your normal life is hunter and gathering, that's, you might enjoy sitting around a fire and playing some sort of game at night. It seems that games across human cultures are universal. And that's why games are fascinating. Imagine you are on a hike in a different city or a different country, in a different culture, and you and you stumble across a, a bunch of kids or teenagers playing a sport, and you might recognize the sport and say, oh yeah, that's, that's football, of course. Or you might recognize elements of the sport, but not entirely, but you notice the kids are playing a sport. Most likely, there'll be a lot of intensity, but also laughter, what we mean by a smaller cultural space is a game, whether it's Monopoly or tennis or baseball or poker, we're creating these little, humans create these little sub subcultural spaces where there's a certain amount of defined rules. And maybe there's a lot of rules and a lot of our normal life is not present in that space. We're just competing with a very clear goal with a very clear set of rules. In a wonderful sense, it's like a, a sport is almost like, a, it is a confined cultural space. It is like a cafe where there are certain social rules. Every cultural space has its certain cultural rules. And sports is wonderfully confined. Think of a running race. 10 people get to the line, here's an oval, go around this oval 10 times, you can't hit each other, you can't change direction, just go. It's extraordinarily simple. You get to more derivative sports like tennis and baseball, well, they become more and more complicated and there's layers and layers of, of strategy. Just like chess or just like poker, these games are complicated enough that they're quite infinite but they're simple enough that someone from across the world who's familiar with tennis or chess can observe you play and understand your thinking and your logic and your strategy. Allow me to pose a few more questions to you, the listener. If we talk about physical genius, what does that look like? What is genius? Is it innovation? Is it some mastery? What are cultural spaces, the cultural space of a city, this cultural space of our family, of our communities, the cultural spaces of sports? What about sports is so powerful? The universality, the unchanging nature of, of baseball, isn't there something beautiful in that it remains the same? But we see these athletes of different generations, athletes from the 1860s, from the 1890s, from the 1930s, from the 1960s, from the 1990s, go through this, this ritual, this ritual of baseball, this ritual of tennis, this ritual of basketball. So something that we find fascinating is genius, is genius in motion. But like, but like David Foster says in his conclusion, perhaps it is beyond the realm of the memoir to really catch this. And what I think is that sports is so wonderful because it is so, it's so genuine and honest and real. When I'm watching baseball, we're seeing live, that is the true reality television. 
This week, they are in the baseball playoffs of 2020, and there is a an MVP-level player, Jose Altuve, who's suffering from the yips. The yips. The yips are something that's very rare but occurs in sports where um, a master-level player cannot do something very easy. The yips is occurring in Altuve's case where he's a second baseman getting ground balls, and three times this week he hasn't been able to make a very easy throw. And almost a very easy throw is messing with his brain more than a difficult throw. So there's a ground ball to second, he picks it up, he throws to first, or in the case the other day, throws to second for a double play, and he can't make the throw. It goes into the ground and it's wild and it creates an error. Something that a eighth grade baseball player would be embarrassed to do. So this is a clear example, fascinating thing. The yips. These kind of mental blocks where genius suddenly is humbled. What's going on there? What's going on in their, in their thoughts, in their emotions, and in their brain? And we get to watch it unfold live. So part of sports genius is it gives us an opportunity to observe real life. It's almost like going to the cafe. But people are competing at the high, with such intensity We get to see their facial expressions. We get to see their frustrations. The cameras love to zoom in on them sitting on the bench after they made a great play or after they failed. A horrible error, a missed catch, a fumble. The cameras focus on their expression because we're fascinated by humans and emotions. How are they dealing with this triumph? How are they dealing with this failure? How do they bounce back? I have a few more quotes from our man David Foster Wallace. Now, he expresses a lot of disappointment in how tennis is portrayed and explained in the Tracy Austin piece. But in his, in his magnus opus, Infinite Jest, he talks a lot about tennis. One of his main characters is an up-and-coming tennis star. So we get to hear a lot about what he thinks. You know, he gets to write very beautifully about why he thinks tennis is such a beautiful sport. Well, I found two quotes that are very pithy get to the essence of David Foster Wallace's observation and uh, his thoughts on tennis. So let me give you those quotes now. Quote, John McEnroe was arguably the best serve and volley man of all time, but then McEnroe was an exception to pretty much every predictive norm there was. At his peak, say 1980 to 1984, he was the greatest tennis player who ever lived, the most talented, the most beautiful, the most tormented, a genius. For me, watching McEnroe don a blue polyester blazer and do stiff, lame, truistic color commentary for TV is like watching Faulkner do a Gap ad. Wonderful. Another quote from David Foster Wallace. I submit that tennis is the most beautiful sport there is and also the most demanding. Basketball comes close, but it's a team sport and lacks tennis's Primal, mano e mano intensity. Boxing might come close, at least at the lighter weight divisions, but the actual physical damage the fighters inflict on each other makes it too concretely brutal to be really beautiful. A level of abstraction and formality, i.e. play, is necessary for a sport to possess true metaphysical beauty, in my opinion. For me, there's a few sides to sports. I think... I mentioned there's certainly the beauty of watching a ball hit deep into shortstop and the shortstop 
goes deep in the hole, fields it, makes a long throw to first, the turn of a double play, a great bunt, a nice line drive. These are absolutely beautiful things to me. But to watch them is nice, but I go to the park and play all the time with my friends, have a baseball catch or play tennis. And when you run around and experience it firsthand, you, you get to have some moments. You get to make a great play or a great pretch. It might not look as great as the pros, but I find that it still feels great. So I, I guess I encourage us to keep playing sports ourselves, to feel that moments of triumph, because they are somewhat relative. We've had triumphant moments playing sports and games. And in our little worlds, we, we, we feel the glory. You win a poker match, or you hit a few bullseye and darts, or you dive or slide and make a baseball catch. I mean, we're in that space. I, I encourage us to keep on pushing ourselves to experiencing it firsthand. We are, we are still these human, human animals that are, we're not just thinkers. We are also physical. We are still we are still athletes. We're still evolved to run and catch and throw and hunt. So it's good to engage that. So today we're thinking about sports. And we're thinking about when we play sports, what does it feel like? We're thinking about watching the local high school team play. We're thinking about our love of professional athletes and what they represent. For me, sports keeps on coming back to camaraderie. Camaraderie of hearing the announcers on the radio or the television. Camaraderie of watching the players play day in, day out, week in, week out. Camaraderie with the guys at the sports bar talking about the game. The common ritual allows us to connect. The common ritual which we did as youngsters, which we observe now. Rituals are important. They're relatable. They're simple. There is a common goal. We live in such a fractured society with so many different goals. To have these ritual spaces with clear goals and clear rules is both a wonderful and fascinating aspect of human culture. Cultural spaces, cultural spaces. What do those cultural spaces provide for us? What are we, what do, are we escaping normal life when we go and watch sports? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Am I escaping normal life when I go for a walk or a run? What is, what is normal life? What are the different cultural spaces in our life? Sports being one, but are we giving enough time for fun cultural spaces? There's cultural spaces where it's work, 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 and stress, and progress, and retirement, and these type of things we worry about. But when is it important to leave those cultural spaces to, to enjoy just sitting and watching a few kids play sports? On the wander, the mental wander today, I think about one of my favorite wanders was this ritual where I would kind of take my thoughts with me, my work. This is when I was trying to write a book back in... Well, I wrote a few chapters of it, but didn't get picked up, so I let it go. And that was the Urban Monk's Handbook. And I was living in San Francisco at a much simpler, quieter San Francisco time where you could still rent for an affordable price. So I hear those times are coming back due to the pandemic. But anyway, I had this ritual where I would go for this about four or five mile walk. The, I've talked about this before in the podcast. This is one of my favorite all-time rituals. I, I would go to this cafe called Tasty Curry and get the lunch specials about late lunch, like 2.30, 3 o'clock. 
It was just a magical ritual. The whole place was covered in these yellow-orange murals. It was calm. It had late afternoon sun. My man Martin would bring out this, this metallic tray, like you're in a dining hall with the lunch special, half a piece of naan, some rice. They had chai that you could serve yourself, some some mix I got the mixed veggies and some chai and some dal. I mean it was it was heavenly. The whole ritual was really just kind of it was heavenly. It it was magical. It's fun to think about it. And and the beauty is I would sit and I would write I would take a piece of paper out, not my notebook, just a loose piece, and I'd write Curry Chronicles, and I'd write every time. So I have to go through and see if I see what I have of worth from those days. But on the back side of that walk, and I haven't done the walk proper. The whole story of the walk is like a half an hour tale. Let's save for another day. But for now, on the back end of that walk, coming back, I would drop down from the Inner Sunset neighborhood where I was had the tasty curry into uh, Golden Gate Park. So I'd walk through neighborhoods, Haight-Ashbury, Coal Valley, Inner Sunset to get to my destination. I'd have my very sweet, calm lunch, and then I'd walk back. I mean, but on the way back, if it was the right time of the year, I would would walk past the ball fields. And these baseball fields are awesome. (laughs) Professional ball fields are wonderful, but sometimes when you're in parks, you find a baseball field or a tennis court that's surrounded by beautiful trees and hills. I mean, this baseball field in Golden Gate Park was surrounded by Monterey pines and just kind of a rolling hills. And then beyond the pines, a deeper hill like Twin Peaks in the background. Some of the settings in the rolling hills of San Francisco are, are some of the most beautiful mixtures of nature, curated nature of a park uh, and and also the nature of skies and clouds and incoming fog. I mean, just inspiring. Urban mixed with nature settings. So I would often go to this baseball field, and sometimes I might sit there if there wasn't a game. But sometimes the year there would be high school teams or junior high teams playing, and without a doubt, if I had the time, I would stop and watch them. And it didn't matter the level of play. It, it was just fun to watch these children competing, in this ritual, this ritual that helped raise me, this ritual that had helped raise people 100 years ago, there's something that I love about the sports that is not about the stars. It's not about the great players, but it's about the genius of the ritual. This slowly evolved game, I mean, this baseball is a derivative from England's cricket, and it came to be in kind of relatively early American history, mid-1800s. And it's become this, this ritual. So the, the beauty of rituals is really important. We live at a time where a lot of our rituals, certainly our religious rituals, have greatly diminished. Our, some maybe our big meals together, our extended family rituals have diminished. But sports have maintained a place. So... Let's think about sports, let's think about cultural spaces, let's think about genius, and I encourage you to get out there and move your body, play some tennis, throw a frisbee, throw a baseball, remember to stay hydrated, try to take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, stay hydrated, get your sleep, living and learning, living and learning, much love, bye-bye.